This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm Anna Horford, and you're listening to the Celtics Life Podcast. Welcome inside the Celtics Life Podcast, with the series being tied up between the Milwaukee Bucks and Boston Celtics two games apiece. We thought we'd shake up the usual playoff coverage with a special guest, Jeff Siegel, a prolific sports writer with an eye for all things cap and strategy related. You can find his work on Blazers Edge, Fear the Sword, Peachtree Hoops, and The Step Back, where he covers the Blazers, Cavs, Hawks, and basketball more generally. But he's recently launched his own site, Early Bird Rights, where he indulges his love for the more cerebral side of the game. We're going to talk about Boston's short and longer term future, in addition to the playoffs to date and ahead, from a non-Bostonian point of view later on. But before we jump into that, I'd like to thank Jeff for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us and ask him a little bit about his most recent endeavor. How you doing, Jeff? Doing well. How are you? A little bit stressed out with the playoffs being here at the same time. I, I teach uh, college at the University of Florida, and as you can imagine, finals and finals, well, not finals yet, but finals in school and the playoffs makes for quite a combination. Yeah, I'm uh, happy I'm no longer dealing with that. I've been out of school a few years now, so I'm happy to uh, not have to deal with tests and quizzes and essays and whatever else you've got to deal with while you're in college. It's a blast. So, early bird rights. Could you maybe tell me a little bit about what inspired the project and like what it's about and where you'd like to see it go? Um, really, uh, early bird rights is just sort of my all of my writing from all the different places I've been writing for the past few years, all sort of mashed into one place now. Instead of, uh, I mean, I'm still writing for lots of different places, but now I sort of have one home for all of my stuff, and that's sort of what I was was uh, looking for when I when I decided to to launch my own site. You know, it's a place also that I can host all of my my salary cap information that's out there. If you guys are interested in that, then I've got all salary cap sheets for all 30 teams are already loaded there. You don't have to ask me, oh, what is, you know, what's Philadelphia's cap situation like this summer? You just go to their their page on the site and it it, it loads perfectly for you. So that's, I think that was the, the biggest reason is I wanted to, to get my cap sheets out there publicly in a, in a published place where everybody can see them. And then it just sort of grew from there into like, Oh, I might as well, you know, write up some of my articles up there and, and do, do as much as I can to sort of promote the site and, and, you know, just have a, a concise place where all my writing can be. I like it. The idea of having that cap information all in place for me as a writer is super useful too, because I'm constantly trying to get ahead of the curve in terms of trying to decide what competition and the Celtics are doing in terms of what they're going to be uh, playing for in terms of signings, in terms of trades, in terms of space, like all of that stuff is super important to me. And with the cap situation being what it is uh, after the, the whole TV money fiasco, I imagine that's you know, extra important. Yeah, it's, it's really important to, I mean, obviously it's important to every team, but especially now that we're sort of a couple of years into the new 
the new salary cap world where everybody had a bunch of money in 2016 and then spent all their money. And now we're sort of in this weird environment where only a few teams are going to have space this summer. Everybody's looking for every little trick. Everybody, all fans are looking for the, the little tricks that their teams can use to sort of upgrade their roster. And so that's what, uh, that's what the sheets are for. That's what they're there for, for everybody to sort of see what, what their team can do, you know, this summer, next summer, whenever you, whenever you want, I've got them all the way out till 2024 for some guys who have, you know, signed those massive uh, contract extensions like James Harden and John Wall. So, you know, you got, you got all the information up there. It's uh, the biggest thing for me is that it's all automated. And so once, you know, once July 1st rolls around and people are starting to sign their new deals, as soon as it gets reported within 10 minutes, I just plug it into my thing and click publish and it's up there. And so you don't have to wait until the end of the day when a lot of other sites will sort of upgrade, uh, you know, update their information or even, you know, some places, you know, will put their, their sheets out and they say, Oh, we're the fastest ones out there. Cause they can put it out within a half hour or an hour. It's like, I don't, I do that 10 times faster than they can. I can get them out there five minutes, 10 minutes max. If I'm, you know, have to update it on my phone, but if I'm at my computer, it'll be up there within, a, within two or three minutes. That's really cool. But you also do other stuff on that site uh, besides just like regular articles. You kind of do kind of like team scouting. I mean, in your articles, but like that's that's kind of another focus that you that you work on. Uh, at least that I've seen. I saw that you you have an article on there uh, where you recently talked about how Boston has been playing in the playoffs, where you talk about things like early offense and uh, double drag in terms of a strategy. Could you maybe talk about? those concepts and, and maybe use that as kind of like a lead in to talk about uh, what you've been seeing from Boston in the first round of the playoffs so far. Yeah. The, uh, so the articles on the, on the site are all based on for right now, of course, during the playoffs are all based on the little tactics and strategies that teams are using. I'm really deep into sort of that, that sort of thing. And so that if, when I, uh, when I cover those things that I hope that people will learn from what I've, what I write about and, with the with the Boston Celtics, I was sort of I was watching them in their their first round series against Milwaukee, and seeing consistently in a, in game two, I believe it was that they were bringing the ball down and flowing into what's co- what I call double drag, what a lot of people call double drag, where uh, where the point guard will bring the ball up on one side of the floor or the other rather than right down the middle. He'll sort of bring it up along the sideline, and then two players will screen for him as he you know, veers from the, the right wing or the left wing to the center of the floor. And it makes it really hard to guard because it happens quickly. It happens early in the offense. Obviously, that's why it's called early offense. Uh, it happens within like the first, you know, maybe six to eight seconds of, of the shot clock. You know, teams run into that. Boston's not the only team that runs this. Pretty much every team runs some form of drag screens in, in transition because, you know, the earlier you can get into your offense, the, the quicker you can get a good shot, the more time you have to work with because, you know, 24 seconds, not a lot of time to find a, you know, a high quality shot. So I think it's it's all about keeping the defense off guard. It's about getting into your, your sets early. It's about, you know, if, if a defense sort of gets back sort of lazily and they're sort of out of position for that initial screen, you can have a three-pointer, you can get to the rim. You know, it's it's just a way to to get things started as soon as you possibly can, as, as you get into sort of semi transition, not quite half court yet, but not quite, you know, full blown transition. Cool. So I have a couple of questions that I gave you in advance, just that I thought our, our, our listeners could really benefit from hearing an outside opinion on. And um, the first of which 
uh, as you know, is why Al Horford is so valuable to Boston. That seems to be something of a mystery to people, and I am not by any means uh, X's and O's tactician type of, of guy. I'm interested in it. Uh, I can wrap my head around a lot of it. And it doesn't seem to be too difficult for me just because of his versatility in passing, but also being able to play inside and outside on the perimeter opens up the floor and, and really his, his court vision accentuates that. Now, am I, am I off base in that understanding? Am I missing important things besides that? I mean, I think the, the bigger thing or the, the biggest thing that I find with him is that as his communication is so good defensively and that that's why that's why when people say, oh, he's in the defensive player of the year conversation, but then you look at his like blocks and steals and rebounding and you kind of go like, I don't understand. Like you can't, you can't put him in that kind of box that you would like even a guy like Rudy Gobert, who's just a phenomenal rim protector. And you can look at his rim protection stats and be like, yeah, this guy is phenomenal. Uh, Horford doesn't fit any of those sort of traditional stats or even the advanced stats like rim protection and tracking stats that we have, but he's just, He's the anchor for Boston in a way that, you know, obviously they haven't, they hadn't had in previous years before he signed. And since he's gotten there, they've been so good defensively, you know, and they lost Gordon Hayward, who himself is a very, you know, high level defender, uh, even if he, he doesn't quite have the reputation for that. Um, and, you know, and, and obviously Horford just stepped right in and they were, they were still one of the best defenses in the league. So I think his, his ability to, to be that defensive anchor and to do, to put out fires where his teammates fail, you know, especially, you know, if Kyrie Irving, who, you know, gets picked on a lot for his defense, if he, if he, you know, gives up some penetration, then Horford can rotate over and just, he's, he, he can guard all five positions. He can switch in this environment today where we have, you know, where everybody wants everybody to be able to guard everybody else that he can really do that. He can switch onto, onto uh, smaller players. He's one of the more versatile guys in the league. I mean, just, you know, if we're looking at, you know, a potential matchup in the second round with Philadelphia and, you know, they're going to throw him out there against Ben Simmons, who is essentially Philadelphia's point guard and Joel Embiid, who's their, you know, all world center. So like, he's going to be able to guard both guys. He's been guarding Giannis Antetokounmpo in the, in the first round against Milwaukee, but then he'll also like guard John Henson or he'll switch on to Eric Bledsoe. Like he'll do all sorts of different things. And that's why I think, you know, one of the the key reasons that he's so valuable just on the defensive end. And then of course, you know, on the offensive end, like you talked about, he can space the floor, you know, it takes a while for him to get that shot off, but because he's a center, you know, people don't close out as hard to him. His, his matchup is further deep, you know, deeper into the paint. So he's got time to sort of get that shot off. Uh, He, you know, he's great on catch and shoot jumpers, 95th percentile and three point percentage uh, among big guys. You know, he's really good from the corners, good from above the break, et cetera. And then of course, you know, the biggest, the biggest thing offensively that people like to focus on is his passing and playmaking. You know, you can run the offense through him at the elbows in the post. He makes everybody better. He's really good with handoffs and stuff. I mean, we saw, you know, we saw how, how Isaiah Thomas sort of made that leap last year. And it's not, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's totally on Horford, but it's not coincidental that Horford joined the team. And then Isaiah Thomas, who thrives in those off ball environments and thrives off of uh, handoffs and stuff that he made that leap when Horford joined. And so I think, you know, I think he, you know, he elevated Kyrie Irving's game as well. And he's a great passer when teams trap Irving out on the perimeter. And so it's just, you know, he's got, he's a, he's the purest Jack of all trades in the league. I think he can really do a little bit of everything, even though he's not a superstar at really anything, you know, he's, he's, he can do a little bit of everything. And that's why he's, you know, that's why he's worth the $29 million that they're paying him. 
so that kind of answers the next question that I was going to pose to you to a certain extent, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit more on the focus. How is a team with a rookie and a sophomore starting the NBA's number one defense? Now, obviously, Al Hofford is a huge part of it, but maybe you could speak a little bit to how Jalen and Jason Tatum and Brown um, are contributing to this defense. I mean, I think the the you know, it's hard to you know you, you want to give Horford a lot of credit for just sort of commanding the defense and being the most important player on the team on that end. You know, obviously he gets you know he he gets a lot of that credit, but you know Aaron Baines has been fantastic as well. But really, you know, for those two guys in particular, for for Tatum and for Brown, like they're they came into the league as relatively high level defenders, especially Tatum. You know, he's already playing like NBA level defense as a rookie, which is way or you know it just everybody sort of assumes when rookies come in that they're going to be bad on defense. And like this particular rookie class seems to be a lot better. And Tatum's, you know, right at the top of that with a guy like Ben Simmons, who obviously was drafted in 2016, but this is his rookie year. Lonzo Ball was pretty solid defensively. Donovan Mitchell's been good. And Tatum's been right up there with those guys. And so, you know, as much as those guys sort of are are bringing it offensively, you know, especially Tatum, Tatum and Brown, they're, they're just as good on, on the defensive end and they can, they can hold their own, even if, you know, obviously Horford and Baines having those, those guys behind you is really helpful in terms of a communication perspective. Baines even, you know, himself is a, is a pretty solid switcher. He's been, he's been good defensively this se- this season. And especially, you know, I've seen him uh, switch on to Giannis Antetokounmpo in the, in the uh, Bucks series. And he's been even solid doing that. So Baines has obviously been a big part of their defense as well, but you know, you, you have to give t- the, the credit to Tatum and Brown that they've, you know they're they're good defenders in their own right. Whether you know what, no matter what scheme they're in, they're they've proven themselves to be good at that level. So this naturally leads me to what should they be doing to to close this series out with with the Bucks? Because I don't know about you, but I was pretty confident that it was going to be much shorter of a series than I initially anticipated with those first two wins. But now I'm getting kind of nervous. I think offensively is where they they need to improve the most. The defense has been there, and it's you know the they're they're playing that high level of defense that we're used to from them. But because they're missing Irving, and obviously they're missing Hayward, and even Marcus Smart as sort of a, a secondary playmaker, you know they're really deep into their their playmaking roster. And so I think it's it's something where the, the Bucks you know took a punch in the first two games, but are, are looking at it like oh we're there they understand how to defend Rogier and Larkin and how, you know, how little those guys can really do in terms of pick and roll situations and off the bounce. You know, obviously Rogier has been fantastic. He's made a bunch of big shots, but you know, you look at their overall pick and roll numbers. They haven't been that great, especially in the last two games. And I think the juicing the offense is going to be the most important thing for the Celtics and, and, you know, in game five and going forward, you know, I think running the ball, you know, running the, the offense through some of their big guys, you know, through Baines, through Horford, try to get, you know, some more handoffs, less just straight pick and roll, but more off ball movement, more cuts. You know, more more stuff like that would be would be helpful for them. Obviously, since since Horford is a fantastic passer, a great screen setter, you know, great in handoff situations as the big guy. You know, put him in those, as many of those situations as possible. You know, you you have to weigh that against tiring him out and and making it so that he has so such a big offensive load that he can't you know can't improve the defense as much as he he needs to so you know you balance that but i think that's that's the biggest thing for them going forward is to try to try to run more handoff type sets more more stuff for for those guards to make it as easy as possible for them to turn the corner and get into the paint 
Now, there was recently uh, the the injury report that came out for the Celtics today has Marcus Smart listed as questionable, which means he could play. Now, he has a doctor's appointment on Tuesday, I believe, several hours before the game. Logistically, it's theoretically possible that he could play. Do you think that he will be a significant force, at least on the defensive end? You know, we know his offensive limitations. But do you think he will be a, a, a big boost, or are Boston Celtics fans probably maybe getting a little bit hopeful? I mean, if he can play, then he's going to he's go, he's going to be a, an impact player for them. I think they'll put the ball in his hands as a, as sort of a a pseudo point guard, as sort of a primary ball handler. Um, he, you know, they'll let him run pick and roll. They'll get him into the paint where he can do a little bit better than he can from outside. But really, if they get him back, he's just another high level defender that they can throw at a guy like Chris Middleton, at a guy even like Giannis. You know, he might be a little small to guard Giannis, but. You know, you certainly can throw him against Bledsoe or against Chris Middleton or some of those guys who have, uh, you know, especially Middleton has sort of struggled or has not struggled, has, has done particularly 60% well. 60% shooting, yeah. Um, yeah, he's, he's been fantastic for Milwaukee. So I think, you know, Smart would – his primary focus would be, hey, you need to just take away Chris Middleton altogether. You know, that should probably be something that Boston's looking at whether whether Smart plays or not, obviously because, because Middleton's been so good. Uh, so I think – you know, if, if he can play, he won't play a lot because, you know, with an injury, you know, the conditioning coming back from that is, is always going to be an issue. So I wonder if they would throw him out there if he can play, you know, maybe 15 or 20 minutes just to sort of get his feet wet in game five before going into game six. But, you know, it's, you know, you always want to be careful with injuries. You always want to be careful with guys who are going into restricted free agency. And, and this is a huge summer for Smart, as we're going to get into later. You know, this is his, you know, chance coming off a rookie contract to get paid. So even if he, like, really wants to get back, you know, the people in his corner might have to start sort of telling him, like, you know, this is a really big deal. If you get re-injured or you come back and you don't look very good, like, you know, we're trying to, to raise your value as much as you can. I know you want to help the team win immediately right now. But, you know, thinking long term, it might be best for Smart himself to to sort of hold himself back and and not play in this first round and really get healthy before he comes back if he does come back. That will definitely not happen, but I definitely agree, at least for him as a person, as not the Celtics, but him as a person, that definitely makes sense because he, he seems to do this to himself at least once a year, you know, punching dumb things, diving for loose balls, sometimes several times a season, he misses multiple games, and yeah, it's really, you know, I'm not going to get ahead of it into the, the free agency talk, but... It's it's definitely an issue, and they have they have a very basically last week on the podcast we talked a little bit about what would happen if we end up matching up with Philadelphia, and in my mind this is kind of similar challenges to what the Bucks present, but with even more and better perimeter shooting. So, assuming that Boston could get there, and I'm, you know I think Miami is pretty much not going to make it out of this round. I mean anything can happen, I suppose, but. Assuming it is Philadelphia, what would your thoughts be for how Boston could best game plan to deal with with all the shooting that they provide around Embiid? Yeah, I think the the biggest thing there is like all the shooting around Embiid. Embiid is not going to be an offense like Embiid is not the the offensive focus in the way that Giannis is for for the uh, for the Milwaukee Bucks. You really everything has to start and stop with Ben Simmons. If you can keep him out of the paint which is impossible pretty much because he's almost <laughs> lebron like in that way and that he just 
he just gets there and he, you know, he can't shoot outside of about five feet, but somehow he is still immensely effective and he's just, you know, but I think that's where things, you know, really need to start for, for the Celtics is they need to, they need to focus a lot of their defensive energy on Ben Simmons and Embiid where is going to sort of get his on top of what Simmons does. But if you can cut off, you know, cut the head off the snake in that way, then, then Embiid might have a little bit more, more trouble sort of producing at, at a high level. So I think he's, you know, Simmons is, is thrives on being comfortable in the half court and getting out in transition. So it's going to be really imperative for the, for the Celtics to throw different looks at him, rotate from different places, give him different matchups. And you really have to get back on defense you know, it's it's one of those things where you know even if he if he grabs a rebound or if any any sixer grabs a rebound in traffic, they're immediately looking for Simmons and he's immediately looking in transition. You have three guys back; it doesn't matter. He's going right to the rim, so it's important to like pick him up early, get three or four guys back, and really try to wall off the paint from him in transition. You know, and, and then of course, you know he is still a rookie. He's obviously one of the better passers we've you know probably ever seen in the NBA, but he is a rookie. Decision making is not quite you know, at the highest level, obviously, because he just ha- doesn't have the experience yet. So rotating from different places, we're sort of getting into the weeds of pick and roll defense here, but rotating from different ways, rotating different ways, throwing different defensive looks at him, you know, playing the pick and roll, trapping one possession, dropping back the next possession, stuff like that, I think would, would help in terms of just slowing him down a little bit and trying to, trying to use his physical gifts sort of against him. And he'll try passes that are sort of more audacious and you can, you know, get into the passing lanes and pick those off and run the other way to try to get, uh, you know, try to get transition points against a Philadelphia team that's also, you know, extremely good on defense, just like the Celtics are. So, you know, I think those are the, uh, you know, those are the, those are the things I would focus on against Ben Simmons. Obviously, Embiid is going to, you know, hurt you in the post. He can hurt you from, you know, he can hurt you from the mid post. He can hurt you really, you know, hard down low, you know, especially when they go small, when, when Baines and Monroe are both on the bench and Horford is at center you know, you're going to have to, they're going to throw the ball into Embiid against Horford and Horford, you know, for all of his defensive versatility. And as much as we love him for everything that he can do, you know, all over the court, just being very, very strong in there and, and banging with Joel Embiid is not his, his forte. And so you're going to have to try to bring help from somewhere. You're going to have to try to, you know, maybe you can bring help from Simmons if he's on the perimeter, but he's a really good cutter. They've got a lot of other shooters who you can't leave. JJ Redick, Marco Bellinelli, Ursan Eliasova are all playing really well right now. So you, you know, you have to, you've got to have to dig and make sure Embiid picks up the ball. But once he does, you've got to get back out to your shooters and, and contest their shots as, as much as you can. Boston's got one of the best spot up defenses in the league during the regular season. And a lot of that can come down to, to lock on opponent three point shooting. They rotate really well on a string. And if, as, even if you're helping off a of JJ Redick, the next guy's going to rotate over. And then the guy who helped might take Ben Simmons if he cuts the basket. So, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be very important for them to play, you know, lineups that are, are relatively similarly sized across the board. You play a lineup like Rogier, maybe smart. If he comes back, Marcus Morris, Jalen Brown and Al Horford say just as, as a five man unit, those guys can all, everybody can switch and everybody can guard everybody in that situation. It's going to be you know, imperative for them to, to dig into Joel Embiid and then rotate out in a way with the four guys who are not Horford on the perimeter in a way that makes, that cuts off all of Embiid's options, throws different kinds of rotations at him to make sure that if he picks up the ball, he's not sure where he's going to pass it because he doesn't know exactly where the defense is going to go. That's just, you know, another, you know, just like we talked about with Simmons, another part of how you sort of try to confuse younger players into, into making bad decisions.
So, more likely than that, young players making bad decisions are going to end up ending this season for Boston. Maybe not. You never know. Anything is possible. Keep trying out that wonderful line. Uh, but when that happens, Boston is going to have to make some hard decisions about who they're going to be bringing back. They've got a lot of free agents coming in to the market this summer. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about who you think is more or less likely to come back. There's Greg Monroe, Aaron Baines, Shane Larkin, Jabari Bird as a lesser extent, but, you know, picked up a lot of interest towards the end of the season with Bostonians and their fans. Uh, Jonathan Gibson as well in the same, the same kind of a boat. And then those are all unrestricted free agents with Marcus Smart being a restricted free agent. I think the best way to do this would be, at least in my mind, would be to look at the two bigs uh, and then the guards, because I think any of those three, Larkin, Bird, and Gibson, could fill out the end of the roster. And then Smart is his, his own animal with the restricted free agency being a different different kind of a, a beast. So um, do you have any thoughts on those guys? On Monroe and Baines, I think the the two, the biggest thing that they have right there is that uh, the Boston Celtics only have non-bird rights on those guys. So they really, in an, imp- in an impacted market and a huge sample supply, a lot of, you know, a huge uh, center supply is what I meant to say there. Uh, I imagine both of those guys could come back for less money than their non-bird rights, you know, would stipulate that they, they can't pay more than uh, the, so Boston can't pay more than $6 million for Greg Monroe next season and about $5.2 million for Aaron Baines because of those non-bird rights and because Boston's already over the cap even without those guys. So because yeah, they've got about $107 million in, in salary for next season. So they're already over the cap before these guys are, are decided. And so it's, you know, I think the, the important thing for them is that, you know, can, do they – can they go out on the market and use their mid-level exception of about $8.6 million to bring in one big man who's better than both Monroe and Baines? Or should they focus on trying to re-sign those two guys at, at, a, at a lower cost and try to sort of continue to help them build their value and you know, get a, a, another year or two of good play out of those guys? It's going to be, you know, it's going to be really interesting. There's going to be a lot of, I would imagine, there's going to be a lot of sort of pre-work done in the in late June and 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 even into you know mid June, depending on uh, when the season ends for the Celtics, you know Ainge is going to be doing his work before free agency really opens. You know, obviously we 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 don't condone tampering, but it happens all the time. So it's, we're just going to talk about it like it like it happens. So you know, I think the uh, the important thing for Ainge with those two guys is to see whether there's a bigger money guy out there who's willing to come for eight point six million dollars as a chance, you know, for for a chance to compete for a championship. You know, like Boston with Kyrie coming back, with Hayward coming back next season. You know, if somebody, if a, if there's a big man out there who's who's you know maybe later in his career and wants to compete for a title, Boston's a really great place to do it. Especially you know, depending on what happens with LeBron James, if he goes back to Cleveland, things might be a little bit more open. Obviously, if he goes to Philadelphia, then you know things are a little bit different. But you know, if LeBron goes back to Cleveland or LeBron goes west, you know, you can see you might see Boston really be aggressive with that eight point six million dollar mid level exception and try to to sign a bigger fish who, you know, maybe is worth twelve to fifteen million dollars, but is willing to come for less to play for a championship. If you had to choose between the two and they would both come back, who would you pick? 
I pick Baines, even though he's the lesser paid player in this situation. I think Baines is better defensively. He does more of the little things that Boston needs. You know, he sets screens like a madman. He's really, you know, very solid at, at setting screens. And they don't need the the offensive creation that Monroe brings. You know, I, hopefully next year Hayward, Irving is are going to be healthy all year. Tatum and Brown showed a little bit of playmaking on their own. Rogier will be back no matter what next year on his uh, on his. Uh, under his fourth year team option, which they've already picked up for three million dollars, so unless they trade him, there you know he'll be back. So they're going to have enough offensive creation, not to mention Al Horford, which we've already who we've already talked about in terms of an offensive creator. They don't need Monroe's offensive capabilities. You know, obviously you're, he's somebody you can throw the ball to on the second units, and he's been very helpful for them, and he's a very solid player for this specific Boston Celtics team that's missing Hayward. Irving missing Marcus Smart a little bit as well. So, but but in the big picture, when you're looking forward, you're hoping that all those guys will be healthy next year, and Monroe's ability to play in the post and and to you know even make plays for others is just not as important as what Baines brings. What Baines brings as a screener and as a defender, especially. Okay. Now the end of the roster is not normally something that people obsess too much about, but with this cap crunch, like getting in quality rotation players, particularly when you have guys like Kyrie Irving who have a history of injury, having a little bit more depth, particularly skill depth is particularly useful. So as we saw this season, the debate on whether we want Jabari Bird, Jonathan Gibson, or Shane Larkin, well, Shane Larkin wasn't part of that this year, but he will be next year. It's actually kind of significant, particularly in terms of being able to avoid the repeater tax by, by paying guys on the roster who we'll be talking about very shortly as a possibility. So of those three guys, do you think any of them are worth bringing on next year? And if you do, which one would you lean towards? I think Larkin is the, the I mean, Larkin is obviously the guy they leaned, leaned towards in, in this playoff run. He's playing the backup point guard minutes. He's making minimum contract this year. He'll be a minimum or unrestricted free agent. He could sign elsewhere with pretty much anybody, but they can, you know, they, they can bring him back on the minimum or on, on something slightly larger if they wanted to dip into one of their exceptions as well. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what they, how they value him versus, you know, another minimum guy who maybe is a little bit more of a veteran who, you know, is a little steadier. Larkin's been a little bit loose with his handle. He's not he's not quite the, the backup point guard you would want on a championship-level team. But, of course, if Kyrie and Ter- Terry Rogier are healthy, then he'd be more of a third point guard, which, you know, might be might be a better role for him as, as a minimum guy. So it's going to be interesting to see. I think he's he's the guy, obviously, that it looks like they prefer based on his play in, in the playoffs. The fact that he's getting minutes means that, you know, he's – and the fact that they decided to leave Jabari Bird as a two-way player rather than convert him – you know, means that they have some trust in Larkin to run the offense to be that backup point guard if necessary. So I think he would be the one you would look at to think is most likely to come back and play a, a at least a some some small role on next year's team. Jabari Bird is going to be you know is coming off of a two way contract. They didn't convert him, so he's going to continue to be on that. Uh, he'll be he'll he'll be a free agent this summer, but they can bring him back on another two way deal if he if he doesn't find that he has another deal out there for him. So. You know, it's it's hard to say whether he'll be a big part of the team next year or if he'll just come back on another two-way contract. And then Gibson, I would assume, is not going to be back at all. He's already, you know, he'll be 31 right about the beginning of next season. They'd have to give him a qualifying offer because he's, as old as he is, he's actually technically a restricted free agent because he hasn't been in the league that many years. So he would come back. 
you know, under a qualifying offer that would be $200,000 above the minimum. And because like we talked about with the, or like you talked about with their tax crunch, you know, they might, they, I would imagine it's very unlikely that Gibson would be back as a, as a regular free agent in the summer and instead would come back, you know, maybe as a, as a rest of season guy, you know, midway through next year, if they have a lot of injuries, just like he did this year. Now, the next two people I want to bring up um, are grouped together mostly because of the assumption that we won't be able to hang on to both of them. I'm talking about Marcus Smart and Terry Rozier. We, we mentioned that there's not a lot of money out there, and for Marcus Smart, who's going to be a restricted free agent, Terry Rozier, uh, he still has, as we mentioned, that extra year. So Marcus... You know, in uh, 2015, for example, I think he would be looking at way more money than we could afford to pay him, just based on his defense, even if his offense never comes along. Now, the way that things are now, there's only, correct me if I'm wrong, because it might have changed since the last time I checked, but there's only about 10 or 11 teams that can get to, like, double-digit million, like, basically above the mid-level exception. So, do you think, for just to start out, that this dichotomy that people are bringing up that we, we can't possibly have both is correct. And if so, do you think there's someone out there who might snipe him? Yeah. I mean, he'll, he's definitely going to be a restricted free agent and there might be some teams out there who value his sort of versatility on both ends of the floor and think that they can bring his shot around. You know, you think of a team like Atlanta who has taken wings in before and turned their shots around completely, you know, and, and made them into at least passable three-point shooters. And so you think that, you know, maybe they look at a guy like Smart who defends his ass off, who plays, you know, plays hard, goes, you know, is a very solid, versatile defender, can handle the ball and pick and roll. If he had a shot, he'd be, you know, a, a very high-level player. And so they might think about bringing him in and, and and putting, you know, putting him into Hawks University to, to give him a, a three-point shot. But, you know, it's, it's hard to say because, because of that restricted free agency, teams are going to, you know, the market's going to be very cool for these restricted free agents, including Smart. You know, he's the biggest free agent the Celtics have, obviously, you know, because of, of the role he plays when he's healthy. You know, he's a big part of what they do as a role player. But the money he's looking for against what the market's going to dictate he's worth might extend his free agency a little bit i wouldn't be surprised if it's you know july 20th and we still haven't heard about a smart deal because he's gonna you know if he's looking for 15 million dollars a year as a starting caliber player which in a market that's more open might be what he's worth there's not a lot of teams out there who can give him you know even 13 to 15 million dollars and are willing to wait the two days that it's going to take for him to you know for them to offer him uh, sign an offer sheet with him and then Boston's going to have the opportunity to match and Boston obviously can match on any number they want because you know he's got their uh, they've got his full bird rights and and so they've got full full match rights on him so you know it's going to be hard to understand if there's a team out there who will have space late in the month of July you know late into like July 10th 11th 12th and we'll still see we'll still see smart as somebody who they might be able to nab from the Celtics you know, it just, it doesn't seem like that fits out there. And then, you know, Ainge is obviously going to put the screws into him because he puts the screws in everybody. You know, he's not going to be, he's not going to be like, oh, we love Marcus Smart and he's a great part of our team. So we're going to, you know, take, you know, we're going to pay him more than he deserves. You know, he's going to, you know, he's going to turn the screw a little bit and he's going to try to, you know, use his, use any leverage he has to, to, to make Smart sort of, you know, bring his price down. And if he's, you know, if, if Smart, 
doesn't doesn't acquiesce to that. Maybe he signs the qualifying offer and is an unrestricted free agent in the summer of 2019. But you know, it would it wouldn't surprise me to see him come back for something, you know, in the in the maybe nine to ten million range, just because the market is what it is right now, and it's just so you know, there's going to be so little money out there for so many free agents that the restricted free agents in particular are going to have a really hard time finding some money. I'm glad you said that because that's exactly what I picked it at and exactly why. Now, Terry Rozier, he is an extension candidate, if I'm not mistaken. If, if, if you think that Boston would extend him, and I, I do think, I mean, if they don't end up trading him, that's another possibility. But maybe you could just tell me what you think in terms of if he should be extended for, if for how much and for how long based on the current market, and if he might be, in your mind, a better trade option based on the dynamics of the market in Boston situation, what we what we what we could expect to get back for him? Maybe if you can think of anybody who might be interested. Yeah, I mean, I think he would be. You know, just going to trade talks first. He's going to be somebody who would be part of a package. You know, maybe a big fish like Anthony Davis, of course, has been thrown out there a lot. But now, of course, that that uh, you know, now that the 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 Pelicans have had such success in the playoffs, they swept the Blazers. You know, now that they are. You know, they might even have a real chance against the Warriors if Curry can't come back. You know, I, I would assume that Anthony Davis is going to be off the off the table this summer. Maybe by next summer he might come back, but I would I would assume that that the New Orleans is not going to entertain trade talks and he's not going to push his way out because of the the team success that they've had. You know, even just in this first round of the playoffs. Um, so then it you know then we start getting into his extension talks and it's going to be really interesting. He is eligible for an extension before the uh, before the season opens in October and it's going to be really interesting to see what Ainge does with him. Obviously there have been rumors and and there have been stories about how much Ainge sort of values what what Rogier brings to the table and how much they they like him as a player and he's obviously had a had a fantastic playoff so far. So it's going to be interesting to see whether they you know, like I expect them to do with Smart, like they've done with everybody else. If Ainge sort of says, you know, hey, there's not a lot of money out there. You can go into restricted free agency, but, you know, Rogier will be able to look at what just happened to Marcus Smart, and they'll, his agent will be able to look forward and be like, there's not a lot of money out there, even in 2019. There's not, you know, there's projections are that the, the cap is not going to rise that, you know, too much, and it's still going to be very impacted. There's not going to be a lot of teams with money. So Boston can sort of look at Rogier and be like, hey, you know, you're going to be our backup point guard behind Kyrie Irving. We, you know, maybe they don't really see him as a pure starting point guard, like as, as worth, you know, in the, the 12 to $15 million range. It wouldn't surprise me at all for them to offer him something like four years, $36 million and hope that he takes it even less than that. Maybe, you know, you could offer him four for 28 and at $7 million a year and hope like, you know, Hey, this kid's only made, you know, maybe around $10 million in his life. Maybe he takes $28 million and we get him on a really cheap contract because they're going to, you know, his Rogier and his representatives are going to be able to look at 2019 and go, you know, we're, we might get screwed if we wait for restricted free agency. So let's just sign this, this lower level offers, you know, this lower level extension right now, because you know, dealing with, you know, dealing with restricted free agency, they're going to see how smart deals with it. They're going to see how a lot of restricted free agents deal with it this summer. And it's going to be really impacted next summer as well. So it's, it's, I would expect that a, that a deal does not get done because, you know, Ainge is probably going to lowball him really hard. He's probably going to offer him like $6 million a year. And Rogier's going to be like, wait, you know, I'm, I'm worth more than that. But, you know, it, Rogier has, you know, 
whatever price Rogier thinks he's worth and whatever price he think you know his people think he's worth, they probably are going to bring that down a little bit just because you know of, of how the impact of the market's going to be in 2019. But the other flip, the flip side for Rogier that's not an option for Marcus Smart in this situation is as because of the timing of when the market's going to open up for for free agents, Rogier might look at it and be like, I'm going to sign the, the qualifying offer in 2019. And then in 2020, when all those terrible deals come off the books from 2016, he can be an unrestricted free agent, go wherever he wants without any matching rights for, for the Celtics. And then he can really get paid. You know, of course, his qualifying offer is not going to be as big. You know, it's, it's really, it would be a risk for him to play under for $3 million next season. And then, you know, his qualifying offer is not going to be much more than maybe four or $5 million the next year. That's, you know, if that's a, if, if, if Ainge comes with a 25 to $30 million offer and he's going to turn that down to play for four and a half and hope that in 2020, he can get that money back. You know, we've seen that not work out for certain guys, but the market's going to be really open in 2020. There's going to be a lot more teams with money as those 2016 deals come off the books. So it's, you know, it's going to be interesting to see whether Rogier opts for that route, really bets on himself by throwing away maybe $30 million to play for $4 million in the hopes that he can make up that $26 million in, uh, in unrestricted free agency in 2020. The season 2019-2020, both Kyrie Irving and Al Horford have player options. So that could play into the longer-term situation going on, depending on how any of that plays out. But before I even entertain that notion, do you think there's any chance that either of these guys would decline those? I don't, personally. You don't think that Kyrie Irving's going to decline $21.3 million? Because I think he's absolutely going to decline that. He's going to become a free agent next summer, I would imagine. And he's going to get, you know, he's going to make, if he's, he's slated to make about $20 million next year, and then he's got a player option for 21.3. But if he opts out and re-signs with the Celtics, which, you know, is seems like a, a reasonable expectation given his injury history, if they're willing to have him back, if he has a really good year next year, he could make, $30 million and lock in like $150 million going forward. You know, his max starts at 32.4 and would total almost 190 million. You know, I would, I would say it's very likely that he'll opt out in 2019 and, and pressure Boston into giving him a max contract because they won't be able to replace him if he, if he leaves because they'll be, uh, they'll be so far over the cap. It won't matter. You know, it won't, uh, they won't have uh, any cap space. It's not like they'll get the cap space that he, he leaves if he were to walk away and go to another team. Okay. So they, they might have that pressure on them to, to re-sign him to a max contract or a near max contract where he can up that 21.3 to maybe 30 or $32 million next year. Horford is the more interesting one. I think he's, his player option is for 30.1 million. He's already on a very high contract because he was, uh, because he was signed in 2016. And so, and he'll, of course, you know, he'll be a little bit older. He'll be 33 by that point. So it's going to be interesting whether he he may opt in and just take his money, the money that's guaranteed that's right there in front of him, or he may try to work, work a deal out with Boston and be like, hey, I'll decline this, but instead of giving me $30 million for one year, give me $50 million or $60 million over three years so it lessens the cap hit on each of the years, it lessens the tax burden on the owners, but then Horford gets more money and can just sort of ride out his career with the Celtics over the last three years from – you know, 2019 to about 2022. 
So I think, you know, I think that's, that's what I would look at if I was Horford. I would be prepared to opt in and then become a free agent in 2020 and probably take a smaller deal at that point because he'll be older. But, you know, it, it would be interesting to see if he opted out and then he got sort of a, a longer deal with more money but less money per season. But Irving, I, I entirely expect to opt out and he should get 30, 32, you know, right, right in there, million dollars for, for 2019 and get almost a, a near max contract for four or five years. Interesting. You completely turned my assumptions on their head in both cases, because I assumed because of Kyrie's injury history and the constricted market, there wouldn't be too many teams out there that could, that could field as competitive an offer. And depending on how he plays next, next season, if it hasn't healed, it could be an issue. Now, in the case of Horford, what you brought up initially was my assumption that he's going to be quite happy to take that big paycheck at his age just because, in my mind, there wouldn't be too many teams. I mean, a lot of teams know what he does, but the age plus the, the, the tendency of big men to fall off. Now, he has a game that isn't quite subject to that and no real injury history to speak of, but in my mind, old big, 30 million bucks, seemed like a, a, a natural you know, a very clear answer, but the the whole renegotiating in, in years, not dollars, that actually makes a lot of sense. And I'm along with a lot of Celtics fans, I think really like to see something like that because as, as I'm sure your Atlanta fans did, we've grown kind of attached to the guy. Yeah. You, 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 it tends to happen with Al Horford. If you watch him every day, if you really, you know, enjoy the smaller things about basketball, you really understand how much he brings to the table, but he will be 33. And like, you know, a, a guy who's not, you know, naturally massive he's not naturally immensely quick if any of that drops off if he can't leap as high as he normally does and he doesn't even get that high off the ground normally but if his quickness drops off as he gets into his sort of mid-30s at that point that you know that 30 million dollars might be kind of might be kind of a problem i know from talking to people in atlanta that when he wanted a five-year max in atlanta that would have gone through 2021 they were they balked at that and they were like well we'll give you a four-year max but we don't want that fifth year so you know there there is some concern that as he ages his game will slip a little bit and if his game slips you know especially as a defender he's not bringing the same value that he obviously is bringing this year you know he's been fantastic he's really warded off father time as a as a 31 year old i think he is now you know so i think it's 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 important to see what he's doing now, but also you know by 2019 he'll be 33. It'll be more uh, you know more interesting to see whether he opts in for that 30 million and just takes his money if they can't get a, another deal done, or if he tries to sort of you know opt out and try to you know get get that last big payment you know for three years and 50 or 60 million dollars. So beyond that, in the 2019-20 season, Jalen and Jason obviously will both have their options picked up. I'm 100% confident there. But Yabusele and Ohale will both be in the situation that they will also be up. And to date, we've seen little flashes here and there, but what do you think their future holds in terms of uh, becoming free agents? I think Yabusele will be around no matter what. He's on the uh, he's on the same sort of path that Jason Tatum's on in terms of being a first round pick, and you know they can t- pick up those team options well in advance. They'll actually need to decide on his 2019 team option before you know right around the start of the 2018 season. So this coming October, they'll make that decision, and it would be very surprising to see him them opt out of that. He's only 3.1 million dollars. If he shows anything, and he's already you know he's playing for them in the playoffs right now, and he's not 
It's not like he's getting cooked out there and you go, oh my God, this guy is not, a, <laughs> not an NBA player. You can see it with him. And if you can just see any glimpse of NBA potential with him, then you definitely pick up that option, keep him around for 2019-20. And then maybe you make a decision in 2019 about the 2020 option. But I expect him to to see out the, both of those two years and become a restricted free agent in 2021. Uh, Ojale is much more interesting because he's – He's non-guaranteed even for next year, non-guaranteed the next year after that, and non-guaranteed in 2020. Plus, he's got a team option in 2020, so they've got all sorts of options. They can pretty much get rid of him at any time and not take that much of a hit. You know, they really that's that's a great contract that they signed with him uh, when when they drafted him, and so it's really it'll be interesting to see you know what they do with him. Again, I expect because he's shown flashes of being a solid NBA player and he's on a minimum contract for the next few years. I expect that this is a no-brainer that they'll bring bring both of these guys back. You know, especially Ojale on such a small contract, just one point three or one point four million for next year, one point six for the next year, one point eight the next year after that. I would expect him to to play out that entire contract, and then by when they get near the end, they can start thinking either about an extension for him or you know seeing him into uh, free agency in either twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one. So I have one more guy to talk about in terms of pending free agencies in, in the medium term. That's Daniel Tice, who will also be an unrestricted free agent. But he's going to be coming back. Uh, he'll be 28 in this season with a recently torn meniscus. Do you think it's kind of more of a wait-and-see kind of a thing? Yeah, I mean, they know more about him medically than we do. I think medically is the most important thing. He's a little bit older. It's, you know, it's, it's essential for them to understand what his, his situation is. He'll be, you know, he'll be a, uh, he's non-guaranteed for next year. And so they can really, they can use the entire year to sort of understand where he's at at a very cheap price. You know, he'll still be under that $1.4 million for next year. So based on what he showed in uh, in 2017-18, he's clearly worth that if he can come back from this injury. If he can't, then they can cut ties with him and be, you know, wash their hands of it and it's no no big deal. You know, obviously that's a little bit, uh, you know, it's a little crass and it's a little sort of robotic to say they can just wash their hands of him when he gets injured. But that's just sort of the way it is for for these guys on minimum contracts. When they get hurt, it's just, you know, it's it, it's really all about that recovery for him. And if he can get back to playing at the at a at a decent level in in 2018-19, then you know they can they can they can actually make him a restricted free agent because he is a because he's only been in the league two years at that point. They can tender a qualifying offer, make him restricted, and and try to work out a longer term deal. How to manage to avoid the tax, specifically the repeater tax, because at this point in like the 2021 season and beyond, they will probably have hit the tax at least one season between now and then, and might have hit both. So maybe just some general thoughts on where Horford fits. Can we afford to pay all the young guys? Do we need to trade some of them? Do we need to find a way to get rid of Al after a couple of seasons if he does resign just to avoid the tax? Do we try to hope that the the ownership group has deep pockets? Just some whatever your general thoughts are in terms of the, the longer term horizon. I mean, I think at this point you can plan for you. You know, I I, I would plan for Kyrie Irving to opt out and take a, a very large contract. You know, Horford if he opts into that thirty point one million, then by twenty twenty you can sort of 
you can wash your hands of him. He'll be older at that point, and you can sort of move in a different direction at the center position. You know, maybe somebody that you can draft and develop. Maybe Abusele for whatever. You know, maybe he can develop into a starting level player. I don't expect that, but maybe he can. You know, something like that. If he opts out, and then you give him a sort of one of those you know, more years, but less dollars per year, then that will help with the tax situation in future years. You know, and then of course, by the time we're getting into 2020, 2021, Gordon Hayward, you know, we haven't, we've seen five minutes of Gordon Hayward in the Celtics uniform, and we're already thinking about, well, he's going to be a free agent pretty soon because he's got that player option in 2020. He can opt out and be a, be a free agent in, in just two years from now. And so it's going to be really interesting to see what he does. If he's at that level that he commands a, a, you know, a much larger max contract in 2020, then they're really sort of up against the tax. They'll still have Tatum uh, under, uh, under his rookie deal and Yabuselli under his, but Jalen Brown will be a free agent in 2020. And so they're going to have to probably pay him. You know, he's going to be looking for, you know, just based on the play that we've seen from him in his first two years, he's going to be worth 15 to $20 million a year. So and then and of course the 2020 market's going to be wide open. So he's going to probably get that kind of money. So they're going to have to sort of work through all these things. That's a lot to sort of think about from from where we are right now in 2018. But they're thinking about that, and they've got to start thinking about when does the repeater tax kick in? Should we try to pay the tax in 2018, 19, so that that repeater tax starts up, the clock starts up on that, or should we try to duck under the tax in 2018, even if it means losing a guy like Smart? Maybe that's worthwhile in terms of the long-term, you know, financial outlook for the team. You know, it's it's the the most important thing, of course, is to try to talk to the ownership group and try to figure out where their heads are at. If the team is a championship contender, are they willing to pay the tax long-term in nineteen, in twenty twenty, in twenty twenty-one? Like, are those are those things that the the, uh, the ownership group is open to? If not, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. But if so, they can they can breathe a little easier. They can re-sign smart to a a better deal. But those are things that need to be decided or not decided, but they need to be talked about now because smart is going to be a free agent. And if they're going to, if they have to duck the tax every single year, then that means smart can't, you know, it's going to be very difficult for them to bring him back and do everything else to, to round out the roster, even just for 18, 19. And then of course that would impact even more going forward in 2020 and 2021 as his deal would escalate as all as most deals do. So it's, you know, obviously, it's you know, it's hard to even think about 2020 and 2021 right now for the fans. You know, especially because Hayward, like you know, could might not even be on the team in 2020. Kyrie Irving could opt out and leave as an unrestricted free agent. Horford could opt in and then leave in 2020 once the, you know once his his deal runs out. So like, it's hard to really wrap your head around. But if you're if you're thinking about the best case scenario where all these guys come back and they're all on the team long term for big money, except for maybe Horford, who's on a smaller deal, like we talked about earlier. You've got to start making that decision about smart now. You've got to start thinking about the uh, the ownership group. You've got to have conversations with them of like, how much tax can we pay for a championship level team? Does LeBron's free agency decision play into that? If he goes west, do they decide? Oh, we've got we're we're the best team in the East right now. Hayward's coming back. Irving's coming back. Let's go. Let's go for it now, even if it means a large tax bill and starting the clock on the repeater tax. But if he goes to Philadelphia. Like maybe they start looking at it like uh, maybe we're not so we're, maybe we're not as close to a championship as we thought we were. Philadelphia, of course, you know if let's say for example that uh, that Boston plays Philly in the next round and Philly wins and it does you know Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are dominant and even though they're bringing back Hayward and Irving, LeBron James signs with them. Like maybe you know we might 
we might be looking at the horizon of this Celtics team as a little bit shorter than uh, than we would have previously thought. If you know, depending on where LeBron goes, so it's always you know all those things are going to play into to take you know take into consideration, and that's why that's why teams always wait for LeBron to make his decisions before anything else happens. That's why the big dominoes always fall first because they change the landscape of the league so much that you know it's hard to it's hard to, to it, it would be hard for them to re-sign Marcus Smart without knowing where LeBron's going to go. You know, it's hard to to gauge his value. It's hard to figure out what kind of trajectory the team is on before LeBron makes that decision. You have been stupendously generous with your time. The playoff games for tonight, it's Tuesday night when we're recording. Excuse me, Monday night when we're recording. I just want to make sure that everyone out there hears your site again. It's Early Bird Rights. Is there anything on that or any of the other sites that you're working on that you would like to you know, direct people's attention to just to check out your work? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at JG Siegel. You can find all of my my playoff coverage on earlybirdrights.com. You can find all of the salary cap information that we've been talking about. Everything that I've been talking about up there is all up on the website. You can find it, uh, you know, can find it really easily on, uh, on earlybirdrights.com. So, you know, follow me on Twitter. You can find my stuff there. Anything else, you know, about the, uh, the playoffs might, you might find some, uh, some Cavalier stuff on fearthesword.com. You can find Hawks coverage on Peachtree Hoops. I'm going to be getting into draft stuff for them pretty soon. Blazers Edge, I do, you know, a column every two weeks for them based on on things that are going on in their season. And obviously, you know, they've had a, a very interesting postseason in, in not a good way. But, uh, you know, you just follow me all over the place. Everything is sort of, uh, I'm, I'm kind of everywhere right now. But, you know, early bird rights is where my the focus is right now. All of my, all of the financial situations for every team are up there. And if you're, you know, looking for more specifically about the Celtics, I wrote about them last week on, on that double drag play that we talked about earlier. There'll be another, another post up as you're listening to this on Tuesday. I haven't written it yet, but it'll be up by Tuesday on, uh, on another one of their plays called Horns Milwaukee that you can, uh, that you can see that they'll, they may unveil on, uh, on Tuesday against the Bucks. Uh, so, you know, just I'm all over the place right now. Just, you know, you can find me pretty much every day on some platform or another. Very cool. For the regular listeners, uh, I'd like to ask if you could check out the links at the top of CelticsLife.com. We have a huge variety of shirts and hoodies. You can't get them anywhere else. And you can even get tickets if you act real fast to the last two home games in this series under the heading, very difficult here, tickets. Uh, you can find the pod on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere you can find uh, podcatcher apps. Uh, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, you know what to do. Rate us five stars. If you don't like something or you have a suggestion, just let us know with a comment on any Celtics Life article, though preferably related to the podcast, or on Twitter with a hashtag CLPod. That's CLPOD. We're always trying to bring you the Celtics coverage the way you want and the way that you like it. Thanks, Jeff, for coming on. Anything else you want to say before we get out of here? No, just thanks for having me. All right. Take care. You too.